This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Norm Ornstein, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a while since, not that long a time since you were on the uh, Intelligence Squared stage just before the pandemic hit. So um, it's great to have you back uh, virtually this time, of course. It's good to be back virtually, not as good as in person, but uh, it'll do. So what I wanted to ask you to do is to help folks understand this concept of the filibuster, this odd sounding term. I want to talk about where it comes from, but for you to help make the case that it's it's worth doing the little bit of work to understand what it means, because though it frankly revolves around something as dry as a parliamentary maneuver, it really does matter, doesn't it? Oh, it matters enormously. Uh, it enables a minority of the Senate, 40 of the 100 senators, basically, to be able to block action on almost everything that uh, a president might want or that a Congress can do. And if you have a determined minority that forces the majority, in this case, to have to come up with 60 votes, uh, and they can't do it, they don't have enough of their own party members, if they can't get a single member from the other party to join in, it means genuine gridlock. So, so it really is about power. Um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about what it's not, because I think if, if most people have a sense of what the filibuster is, it comes from popular culture and it comes from one movie, Frank Capra's 1939 classic film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I, I'm sure this is the one that you're always asked about also. And, and in it, Jimmy Stewart is this character who has been thrust from obscurity into uh, the position of senator. He's a clean, honest, kind of literally Boy Scout sort of guy who discovers corruption in the system. And and one day he's on the Senate floor and he's trying to talk about this. And, and what happens is all the rest of the senators walk off the floor. They're insulted. And so he finally gets up and he he makes a little speech that sounds like this. Mr. President, I stand guilty as framed because Section 40 is graft. And I was ready to say so. I was ready to tell you that a certain man in my state, a Mr. James Taylor, wanted to put through this dam for his own profit. A man who controls a political machine. And Senator, you... No, sir, I will not yield. So there's this huge hubbub happening in the Senate at this point. And, and you see Jimmy Stewart put some food out. He opens up a bag and he takes out an orange and a thermos of coffee and a bag of donuts. Like he's settling in for the long haul. Senator Smith has now talked for 23 hours and 16 minutes. It is the most unusual and spectacular thing in the Senate annals. And out in the hallway, there's this, you can hear the reporters, you can hear them shouting the word filibuster, filibuster, filibuster. And... And what this was, was this depiction at the time, Norm, of, wow, this guy is really willing to stand there and talk for hours, like really pay a price for a principle that he believes in. Get up there with that lady that's up on top of this Capitol Dome, that lady that stands for liberty. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. And it's kind of a beautiful story. For, for, I'm amazed in one sense that, that Frank Capra trusted the American public all that time ago to understand what the 
parliamentary maneuver was. But but what was that, and how is that not what the filibuster is now? So it, it really wasn't even what it was then for the most part, John. We didn't have individuals who would take to the floor for, as Jimmy Stewart, uh, uh, Mr. Smith did, for almost 23 hours before collapsing. But it was a procedure that was in place for a determined minority to be able to bring the Senate to a halt and try and rally public opinion behind that minority and in the meantime, keep actions from taking place. Now, why wasn't it uh, exactly as we saw in Mr. Smith? And I will say I've seen that movie probably 10 times. <laughs> they changed the rule from what it had been uh, from 1805 all the way to 1917, when any individual or small group of individuals in a kind of tag team could take to the floor and stop anything else from happening and moved it to one where two-thirds of those present and voting could stop the debate and bring it up to some measure or a vote. So it was kind of a, a fantasy picture or a fairy tale picture, but it defined the public image of the Senate. And it's that same public image of the Senate that we see some senators like uh, Democrats Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Cinema of Arizona carrying forward now. And it's still the case, even though they reformed the fundamental rule again in 1975, something we might talk about a little bit, uh, that uh, a minority can block the Senate from acting uh, because mm -hmm. of this Rule 22, which has been in the books for a very long time, even as it was reformed a few times. I hate to bring up this word, but tell us what the word cloture means, C-L-O-T-U-R-E. It means closure, <laughs> and it's the French uh, word for uh, closure, stopping things. It's not clear why they made it a cloture vote. Uh, it's uh, not like uh, there was this strong attachment uh, to another language, but that's fundamentally what it means. And uh, the way it works basically is, you know, stepping back for a minute, the Senate is a kind of informal body. It's 100 individuals. And they do much of their work by unanimous consent. If you want to move to voting on something, you ask for unanimous consent. If you want to proceed to a debate, you ask for unanimous consent. If an individual senator says no and objects, then you've got to go through a bunch of hoops. And if you do that with the intention of filibustering, of trying to do this extended debate and set the hurdle higher, then the Senate has to wait a couple of days to file a cloture motion to have a vote to stop that uh, debate and move to a vote. And then you can have a whole series of cloture votes. Right now, under the rule that was established in 1975 for legislation, you've got to get 60 of the 100 senators voting to say enough. And that's not an easy thing to do. And in fact, if you want to use the filibuster, as the Republicans did throughout uh, Barack Obama's term, and as we've seen a little bit in the first uh, 50 days plus of the Biden administration, you don't have to do more than say, we're going to deny unanimous consent and you're not going to get 60 votes. And you got to find another way to move forward. And no needing to stand up and talk for hours and hours and hours. You just have to sort of say it. Nobody stands up and talks for hours anymore. So uh, it, this is a kind of interesting development. For From 1917, 
when the, the first ability to actually stop debate instead of having people who took the floor for days on end uh, took place, that rule established, as I said, two-thirds of those present and voting could stop the debate. When they changed the rule in 1975, the common wisdom is that they actually made the threshold easier. They moved to three-fifths, but here's the key thing. They moved to three-fifths of the entire Senate. So we have this picture, not just from uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but from the fabled civil rights debates of the 1950s and into the 1960s of round-the-clock sessions in the Senate, lumpy cots set up outside the chamber throughout the Capitol, where people would go on the floor and talk for hours on end. And the minority had to do that because if they didn't show up in large numbers, the threshold for actually ending debate would go down, maybe even below a majority. Uh, When they switched it to a three-fifths of all the Senate, it wouldn't make any difference if you went around the clock. You'd still need to get 60 senators. So let me give you one little story on that front. When the Affordable Care Act was being debated in the Senate, and Democrats at that point had exactly 60 of the 100 senators, and they had a vote to end a filibuster and try and move forward, but only 59 Democrats were around because Robert Byrd of West Virginia was almost literally on his deathbed. And the Democrats had to wheel him out in a gurney into a wheelchair onto the Senate floor to provide that 60th vote as he shook his fist more feebly than usual and shouted out at the Republicans, shame, shame, shame. (laughs) So if you go around the clock uh, under these rules, the majority has to show up. The minority only needs a couple of members around to make sure nothing bad happens. And that's changed the complete dynamic of the filibuster, uh, especially in the last uh, decade plus. Well, we're going to get a little bit into that in the debate. So I want to I want to wrap up our conversation with one, two very quick questions. Where does the word filibuster come from? And does the U.S. Constitution say anything about a filibuster? The second question, no. There is nothing about a filibuster in the Constitution, and the framers actually didn't like, except in very specific cases, supermajority requirements. The word filibuster comes from a Dutch word, meaning freebooter, which is about a pirate. And this is basically (laughs) about pirates hijacking the process. All right. There's a lot of color to this story and a lot of drama. Um, and it's not all Hollywood, but let's, uh, let's, Norm, I'd like you to, to stay around, have a little bit of a conversation after the debate, but let's move on now and meet our two debaters. So let's get started. I want to welcome our two debaters. First, Caroline Fredrickson, who is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center and a professor at Georgetown Law and has debated with us in the past. Caroline, it's great to have you joining us again. Thanks so much, John, for having me. And also Thomas Chipping, who is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation and has a lot of his own Senate time. He spent 15 years on the staff of U.S. Senator Orrin Hatch and was his chief counsel for quite some time on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Thomas, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me. So the question before us is abolish the filibuster. You take opposing views on this. I want to start with you, Caroline, to take a few minutes to tell us how do you answer the question, should we abolish the filibuster? Um, Well, I think it's pretty clear that the answer is um, yes, we should abolish the filibuster. Um, The filibuster has a pretty sordid history. Um, uh, It's been used primarily to block civil rights legislation. 
Um, and there is this mythology around it because people think about the uh, great movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that the idea that senators for some good cause hold the floor for hours and hours. The fact of the matter is it was used mostly to block civil rights legislation. And now it doesn't even require senators to hold the floor. They simply object. And it means that every bill needs 60 votes to pass. And that just doesn't make any sense. All right, Thomas, we've heard uh, what Caroline has to say on this. What's your comeback to that? Um, Well, certainly a few of the ways that the filibuster has been used has been for uh, for negative purposes like blocking civil rights legislation. But uh, in the Senate, and I would emphasize the Senate and the House are designed to operate differently, to participate in the in the legislative process differently. There's nothing inherently sordid about this particular uh, procedural approach to legislation. I would call it extended debate um, because that's the way for more than 200 years, the legislative process in the Senate has operated. And it's actually easier to end debate today than at any time in 200 plus years. It was literally 100% of the Senate for the 19th century, and it's 60 votes today. Um, So it really does go to the design of the legislative branch, the difference between the Senate and the House. And you know, it, it frustrates the majority, certainly, uh, and empowers the minority. Uh, but that's the way that the Senate's legislative process is designed. And it prevents the majority from simply ignoring the minority. Caroline, do you want to respond to that? I, well, so I, I, first of all, I think the um, what people have to understand that the cloture rule itself um, was adopted in 1917. Um, it wasn't necessary before because there weren't really filibusters. And so even though there was an opportunity to hold the floor forever, it just didn't really make sense. And the senators actually did have to go to the floor, which was one of the great reasons there weren't so many filibusters. I mean, they had to, you know, take care of all their bodily needs before they went out there and make sure they didn't have any when they were there, because once you leave the floor, your filibuster is over. Um, uh, So it was really in the 20th century, the major examples of an actual filibuster where somebody was out on the floor holding the floor, um, was in the case of blocking civil rights legislation. And Strom Thurmond um, uh, 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 lasted 24 hours in an attempt to filibuster the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which I believe is the longest filibuster in history. Um, But at a certain point um, in the Senate, um, to make the Senate um, function, uh, when there started to be more objections to uh, uh, legislation, that is, the Senate operates through unanimous consent. So any one senator can raise an objection to moving forward on a bill, um, and that requires that objection to be overcome, um, which in in the olden days, if it was Strom Thurmond objecting to a civil rights bill, he'd have to go to the floor and hold the floor. But now, um, because that would slow down the Senate business, they've stopped requiring um, that a filibuster actually take place in the public eye. They do something called dual tracking, where uh, the objection is registered And the Senate goes on to consider other things. So there is really no cost to a filibuster. And so um, the idea that it actually provides um, and encourages greater debate about issues is completely wrong. Uh, And you can look at this. If you look at the number of filibusters that have happened, um, technical objections to legislation, they have skyrocketed um, without actually any debate taking place. 
So, I mean, I, I, I could say that um, if there were more debate taking place and there was actually a discussion of issues, then maybe there'd be some room for that. Um, but that's not really, that's not what happens now. It hasn't happened for a long time. The filibuster is just a way of making every vote require 60 votes, not a way of forcing a discussion around issues. Oh, I, and my experience in the Senate, uh, I, I would echo some of that. I would love to see more substantive debate uh, on the an actual debate, not just uh, speechifying individual senators going to an empty chamber and giving speeches. That's certainly true. Um, but the but the fact that there have been many more cloture votes um, in the last number of years is not an inherent uh, product of the rules. It, it, Senate rules are not the problem. Senators are the problem. It's the way senators use those rules, the way they interact between the parties. Uh, I, I worked for Senator Hatch, who was in the Senate for 42 years. The first few Congresses that he served, which was right after the current cloture rule was adopted, uh, there was about half of, of cloture votes on legislation uh, resulted in filibusters where the cloture vote failed and they couldn't end debate. His last three uh, Congresses that he served, uh, there were many, many more cloture votes, but 6% of them resulted in filibusters. In other words, the vast majority of them passed, suggesting that a lot of those cloture votes were unnecessary in the first place. That's that. Those are, those are those are choices by the majority leader. It's not inherent in the rules themselves, and the list is very long of legislation that was uh, improved, changed, modified, prevented on uh, a whole range of issues. Most recently, I mean the the COVID relief legislation last year, where both parties have been able to use that to affect the legislative process. But even if you don't go through the drama and performance, and and I don't and I don't think that's what we saw with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, is an accurate portrayal, even of the way it used to be. There was always, there always had to be a cloture vote from the from 1917 on, and the changes have been how many votes it takes to pass that cloture vote. But the heart of whether a bill can move forward is not whether someone is speechifying on the floor; it's whether that vote to end debate passes. And that's always been the heart of the cloture process. Every effort at filibuster reform has always focused exclusively on how many votes it takes to end debate. Uh, and, and whether you're taught, whether someone's on the floor or not, the message is to the majority, you cannot simply ignore the minority and do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. You must deal with the minority. That's a dynamic that's different in the House but it can be very valuable in the Senate. With the history of the Civil Rights Acts and Strom Thurmond's um, uh, many um, filibusters, that yes, it was the minority that was obstructing. Um, and the whole point was to uh, delay the opportunity for a vote of the majority. And if, if the majority wasn't 60 votes, even if this was the will of the country that, to enact incredibly important, I mean, I think Many of us think that the 1964 and 1965 Civil Rights Acts were the most important legislation this country has ever adopted. Um, certainly in the context of, of addressing racial justice and democracy. Um, and that the, the filibusters enabled this small group of obstructive Dixiecrats and other 
uh, anti-civil rights senators to delay this incredibly important piece of legislation. At least at that point, it was in the public eye. And in fact, that's one of the reasons people now suggest that the bill is actually finally passed because they were actually held up to the light. Um, now it is a technical ability. It's a technical um, rule that allows uh, a minority outside of the public eye to delay and obstruct. Um, and I think that means that we, we really, if we want debate in the Senate, um, or if you want the minority to have its ability to speak to issues, we really need a different way than the filibuster because all the minority does now is object to things. They don't go out and debate the issues. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's, let's, let's pivot to that part of the, the, the debate that I think we heard uh, Tom opening in the beginning, that he basically, Tom, you were making the argument that... Um, it is this way because, number one, the Senate is different from the House. It has a different function from the House, uh, according to the framers, who nevertheless did not make specific provisions for a filibuster or cloture rule or any of that. But your your point being that there needs to – the minority should have a, a powerful check on the majority. So what's your argument on that? What in, To the degree that this is a case for the minority having check power – what is your argument for that? Well, the, probably the, the most fundamental principle of government, uh, at least in our system of government, <clears throat> is that our liberty requires limits on government power. And those limits come from things like the separation of powers, federalism, checks and balances. It's a matter of preventing too much power from ending up in too few hands. And that's exactly what this is an example of. And it's, and it's very long been debated that way. Back in 2005, uh, when Republicans were considering doing away with the filibuster, there was a very active debate on the Senate floor. And one, one Democratic senator said the founders sought not to ensure simple majority rule, but to allow minority views to have an enduring role in the Senate to check the excesses of the majority. Abolishing extended debate would be a power grab by the majority. That senator was Joe Biden. Um, and that, that's been the, the basic principle from the very beginning. Uh, you know, the, the, the cloture rule has been tweaked here and there, but the basic idea is that the majority, as happens in the House, should not be able to simply ru run roughshod over the minority. Uh, you know, the, the cloture rule itself was adopted in 1917 after a filibuster of a bill to arm merchant marine ships during the First World War. It had nothing to do with the civil rights movement. It has been used uh, in that respect, some some of that history, but it's been used innumerable times for everything else. The idea that because the filibuster's been used in some cases badly, it should go, is an indictment of the entire legislative process, for heaven's sake. I mean, uh, so um, it's the idea of limited government. All right. I wanted you to run that out so that Caroline could respond. Go for it, Caroline. Well, so first of all, Sure. Um, objections to the motion to proceed have happened with all sorts of legislation. 
but a public filibuster in which somebody holds the floor, a filibuster in the classic sense, has been used primarily to prevent civil rights legislation. Um, so that's just a fact. Um, it's, it, it, it really can't be denied. I agree with you that the objections have been raised by both parties to moving forward on all sorts of legislation, but they haven't been accompanied by what I would call a true filibuster. They're just uh, an abuse of the Senate, uh, the Senate's rules. And, you know, maybe we could just get rid of all of these senators, as Tom suggests, just throw the bums out and get a new crop. And maybe they'll be more respectful of what the uh, what the point of the filibuster might have been at some point in time. Um, but let's face it, the Senate's also changed. Um, we no longer um, have state legislatures elect senators, so um, it's not as different from the House as it used to be. Um, some of us think that's a good thing, and it should be it should be more, um, in fact, democratic and representative of, of the American public. What about Tom's point? I think he's saying that the idea of of a, of a party that has, say, a one-vote majority, 51 votes to 49, should not be able, by virtue of that one vote, to get what it wants in legislation because it's because the country is actually virtually divided, but but decisions are being made for the whole country, and therefore, this this mechanism at least is one way to push back against that particular outcome of a of a party with a very very small lead in uh, Senate seats getting its way. Well, I think that's actually you know a great example because we can see right now with um, uh, how that actually is totally unnecessary to um, have the filibuster to have the minority get its view, uh, its views heard. What you have is a group of senators um, who are acting um, as the fulcrum of this, um, of this seesaw in some ways um, uh, sitting in the catbird seat and <laughs> in a sense, getting to decide what moves forward and what doesn't um, uh, Senator Manchin, Senator Collins, you know, a handful of others um, they're the ones who are making the decisions. So there's no reason to think that a minority um, is uh, is completely shut out here. Those senators are actually uh, making a real difference in, in how issues are being considered. Um, but there are other mechanisms. For example, you could modify other Senate rules uh, to ensure the ability to offer amendments. Um, you, you could structure rules that allow um, uh, participation in debate um, that wouldn't allow an, an automatic 60-vote block um, requiring a supermajority for the passage of, of any piece of legislation. I think if the issue is getting people out on the floor and having their ideas heard, we could talk about that and let's structure some rules uh, to do that. That does, doesn't mean that we shouldn't get rid of the filibuster and a supermajority requirement for passing legislation. And then, and then you'd have a, a second house of representatives, which is exactly what the founders wanted to avoid. It is the different. It is the combination of two houses structured differently, uh, representing different kinds of interests, approaching legislation in different ways that produces the best kind of legislation. Um, offering amendments. Well, that's obviously not the filibuster. The the, the two. The two hallmarks of minority rights in the Senate are the ability to offer amendments and extended debate. These are two separate, some would argue equally important, but two separate uh, opportunities that, that the minority has. I gave the example, working for Senator Hatch, uh, of a, a very different picture in the early part of his tenure when Republicans had only, I think, 38 or 40 seats in the Senate of far fewer 
filibusters, far fewer cloture votes, much more interaction on legislation. That was a choice. The fact that it's now today this all or nothing, you know, I want my entire package or I'm not even going to go along with what we agree on kind of mentality, which I think dominates the entire Congress, but certainly the Senate today, that's a choice. That is not a function of the Senate rules. The Senate rules encourage something good, which is deliberation, which is, while the House is about action, the Senate is to, uh, approaches it differently. Uh, I think we need senators who more appreciate the value of that kind of working together rather than all or nothing, heads I win, tails you lose, which is what's going on today. Tom, are you are you saying then that you essentially agree with Caroline's point that as things exist today, most significant legislation essentially faces a supermajority requirement to pass? You can't pass, you can't count on 51 votes. It's really about a 60-40 vote every time if it's important and controversial. Um yeah, that's probably that's probably fa- a fair description as a practical matter. Again, because of the the dynamic in the Senate, isn't that a huge problem? It's a, but it's the, but that's a choice of senators. It's not in an inherent uh, result of the rules themselves because it wasn't always that way. That's my point. We've had a cloture rule and a supermajority and debate for more than a century, and it wasn't always like we have today. Well, what has changed? Uh, it's senators and the political culture have changed. Uh, we don't, but the problem is not Senate rules. Can we assume that the the average voter probably has the impression that most legislation comes up for a, a straight vote, straight majority vote? And that when we're in a situation today where the Senate is split 50-50, but the Democrats through the office of the vice president have a tie-breaking vote, that the Biden administration, assuming it can get all of the Democrats on its side, and I know that that's not a 100% solid assumption, but can get all of it, that sh- should be able to go ahead and do some of the things that, uh, that, that the Biden administration and some of the president's supporters have talked about wanting to do, COVID relief. There is, I know that Joe Biden himself has uh, not been enthusiastic about changing the composition of the Supreme Court, but quite dramatic changes like that would potentially be possible if there were a straight up vote today. And my question is, well, isn't that ultimately what the system says that the f- people voted for? They voted for a government to bring about change. Now's their opportunity to change. And uh, and the fact that the, the filibuster process, the filibuster reality blocks them from doing that is blocking democracy from doing what it's supposed to do it, but but it doesn't but it doesn't block but it doesn't block the, the congress from from passing legislation it inf, it influences the process certainly but it doesn't block them from doing it covid relief is a good example last year de- democrats basically said unless i get 100% of what we want, we're not even going to allow the three quarters that we agree on to go forward. And they used the filibuster to do it. Let me just say that there, there are a couple of things we need to understand. And first for the audience, there are some areas that are actually exempted from the filibuster rule and uh, budgetary issues are one of them, which thanks to Senator Byrd, who recognized um, that, that, that there actually needs to be a budget um, and that that would have been a problem um, if the filibuster had continued to be, or the the motion, the objection to a motion to proceed, um, and that kind of 
surreptitious filibuster that happens now um, uh, was able to affect uh, appropriations and budgeting legislation. And so one of the, the one of the things that we see now is that the um, uh, there is actually an ability to move forward on some kinds of legislation with only a majority vote because um, the Senate's already started to recognize itself um, the problem, the problematic nature of the filibuster. So right now we have issues um, uh, around democracy. Our democracy has been very much shaken by the events, uh, certainly of the last several months, but um, uh, over the course of, a, of several years of questioning uh, our democracy, of undermining our electoral process, um, of, of supporting armed mobs uh, attacking the Capitol. Um, I think we, you know, there are things that need to be addressed. And when you have this ability for a silent and invisible group of senators to object to moving forward uh, on discussing these issues on um, a real debate, um, we we have a problem as a country, uh, and I, I you know I think we need to 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 reckon with how we make um, this process actually work in a way that we can affect and maybe even solve problems rather than simply letting them fester. And I and I agree with that generally, but um, at a time when the Congress, well, I mean, including the House, but certainly the Senate with a 50-50 division, uh, is is divided as closely as it's actually able to be, which means the minority is the largest that a minority can be in the Senate. Uh, this is actually the last time when you would want to remove barriers to the majority simply railroading the minority. The idea that we could pass legislation on these huge uh, comprehensive issues uh, on a razor thin 50 plus one vote and, and simply ignore uh, not only half the Senate, but what, 75 million voters who uh, v- voted uh, on the other side in the, in the last election. Uh, that, that's, that, that's not a good way to do it either. How come? In other words, I'm asking if, if, if that were the rule and, and the founders didn't say anything about supermajorities, uh, if that were the rule, and and and, and I I've, I've seen it living myself abroad in places like the United Kingdom, which uh, where where the power the party that comes to power with the majority gets to do what it wants to do, and yes, things do swing back and forth, but there's also the ability to correct the swings every few years through an election that the public gets to respond to the program of one party, but that party actually gets to put its program into effect. Well, there, there's, of course, a host of differences between our system of government and a parliamentary system, but maybe that's a different program where we could go into it in depth. But that's certainly not the system that we have here, and it never has been. Uh, during that 2005 debate on getting rid of the filibuster, one senator said, I sense that talk of, of doing that is more about power than about fairness. Some of my colleagues propose this rules change because they can get away with it rather than because they know it is good for our democracy, unquote. That was Senator Barack Obama. Um, you know, the, this is about the kinds of principles that this system of government was founded on. And that's checks and balances. That's limited government. Other systems of government in other countries aren't informed by such principles, but we are, and I think for very good reason. Um, if I could just step in for a, one quick second, just to address the issue about um, the closely divided nature of the Senate and how we need to make sure to re- uh, respect the uh, the um, uh, almost half um, of the of the country, I would say it's actually a rather distorting um, 
what's happened, because we have to remember that the Senate is a minoritarian body already, even without the filibuster, which requires a supermajority now for every piece of legislation. Every state, as the audience knows, gets two senators. But what that means is that when you have a state like California with 39 million people that gets two senators, um, California is in the same basket as Wyoming or Vermont or Alaska, each of which um, have fewer than a million people. And let's not even talk about South Dakota um, or North Dakota. By 2040, with the given projected population vote, two-thirds of Americans are going to be represented by just 30% of the Senate. Now, I understand this was you know, the, the, way, our, the way our Constitution is structured, um, but I think it really puts the filibuster under an even brighter spotlight in terms of denying the ability of not just a majority of the American public, but a vast majority of the American public to see problems addressed um, when you have in such in in such near future a time when two thirds of Americans are only going to be represented by thirty percent of the Senate, um, you know we really have to have a question. We have to answer the question of, of how that's going to affect our democracy overall. Is that really sustainable? Uh, the filibuster is only one element of that, but it does pose, I think, a real threat to a functioning democracy. But of course, remember, Congress has two houses, not one. We shouldn't talk as if the entire legislative process occurs in the Senate. California has, what, twice as many members of the House as any other state. So they, you know, the, the one chamber is represented by in one approach. The other chamber is represented by a different approach. And it's the combination of the two that comprises the legislative process. That was my my point at the top. And these two houses uh, are designed differently. They have different modes of representation. They have different approaches to legislation. So the fact that it's done that way in the Senate uh, isn't the end of the legislative story. It's only the beginning. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, we still have to face the idea that the narrow, narrow majority, I mean, uh, there's what a nine vote difference in the house. The majority can railroad the minority every day of the week if they want to. That shouldn't be the case in the Senate. Not if you believe in checks and balances and limited government. Tom, why do you use the word railroad as opposed to exert its power? Well, exert its power is a much much broader phrase. Of course, that can include lots of different things, including give and take and compromise. The the majority. Yeah dictates the agenda. That's asserting its power. Railroad, I mean, if the majority chooses to, and if they can hold their members together, they can uh, ignore the minority. They can get everything they want, every time, any day of the week. That's what I mean by railroad. And not, not even taking into consideration what the minority's interests and contributions are. All right, Caroline Fredrickson, I want to thank you so much for joining us a second time at Intelligence Squared. Tom Jipping, thank you for your first time. We would love to have you back. Thank you to both of you for, uh, I think, really hearing each other out. Even as you did not agree, you listened to each other, and uh, there was a real true engagement of a kind we don't see enough of these days. So to both of you, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thanks. It was a great opportunity. So, Norm Armstein, welcome back to the conversation. We, we want to do something a little bit different now after hearing the debate. And we heard uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Chipping basically arguing 
for tradition, for leaving things pretty much as they are. He thinks it would be difficult to change the rule, that it would be almost undemocratic at this point to try to change the rule. He feels that uh, the filibuster is never popular with the party that's in the majority, but that it does guarantee something for the minority. And Caroline Fredrickson really just thinks it should be gone, that it has been destructive, that it's been used, uh, it has been used for, uh, for, for causes that don't stand up well in the light of history, particularly uh, to fight civil rights legislation. What we want to do, because I know that you've been thinking about this a lot, is to ask, is there any common ground here? I, I do think that there are a number of options short of just completely eliminating the rule. One of the things that's important to say uh, at the outset of this uh, part of the conversation, John, is that rules and norms interact. You can have a rule that works just fine, where, for example, for decades, there was rarely uh, times when the filibuster was used to really bring the place to a halt, only over a small co- a set of issues of those of great national concern and an intense minority. And if you lose the norm of behavior, you can keep the rule and have it misused or distorted. So what do we do? Uh, If we think about restoring that norm in effect, where the filibuster is a rare thing, not the normal thing, where the minority has a major role to play but can't obstruct forever or indefinitely, here are a few of the things that you could do. One is, going back to our first conversation, restoring that present and voting standard. Now, what difference would that make? We have three-fifths of the Senate now. Make it three-fifths of those present and voting. And let's say you go for a week around the clock, uh, 24-7, and 20 uh, people who support that filibuster don't show up. Only 80 senators are around. You would only need 48 votes, not 60 votes, to break that filibuster and move to a vote. Another way of doing it, and one that I've uh, promoted for a long time, is you flip the numbers. Instead of 60 senators required to stop the debate, where the burden is on the majority to come up with 60, put the burden back on the minority where it was supposed to be and say 41 senators have to be present at all times when the Senate is debating this issue to uh, continue to have the debate. And you can have votes all night uh, at different times, If you can say that they'll stay on the floor and have to debate and it has to be germane, meaning they have to talk about the issue at hand, not read green eggs and ham, as uh, Senator Ted Cruz did once uh, during a kind of showboating uh, of a filibuster attempt. And I love this story, and so I'm going to read it to you. Sam, I am. That Sam, I am. That Sam, I am. I do not like that Sam, I am. That's another way to go. If you wanted to move short of completely abolishing the rule or the supermajority level, but uh, also find a way to have uh, the minority have an extended period of time to make its case, there's an idea that came from now retired Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa, and that is you gradually over time reduce the threshold. So 60 votes to stop debate for three weeks, 57 votes for another two or three weeks. 54 votes for two weeks after that, and then it's down to the 51 uh, required to to bring this to a vote. So we have a calibration here that could take place. And if we included, of course, making the pain a little bit more on the minority, making them be on the floor debating, 
changing the thresholds in different ways so that the burden falls where it should be on a minority that feels intensely but doesn't have majority support, we might be able to get something that both parties could live with. It's not going to make it easy for the majority. You're going to have to uh, stop the place from all other action for a period of time. And everybody's going to have to be around uh, on weekends and at four in the morning uh, to make that quorum so that you can keep doing business. But the minority can't just do it under these circumstances by lifting its little finger and saying, okay, just right now, forget it. You got to get 60, not 50. Well, Norm, you've given our listeners a lot to think about as they as they follow this story, which I don't think is over. I, I mean, the, the, the conversation continues uh, in Washington as never before about either protecting or abolishing the filibuster. And it's really, really interesting to hear that you're saying there's a third way to go. So I want to I thank you for sharing that and also for just helping us make sense of all of this. So Norm Ornstein, as always, as a friend of Intelligence Squared, you're wonderful to have as part of the conversation. And I want to thank you. And thank you for what Intelligence Squared is doing, which is so vital for our discourse right now. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.